This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larsen. And Kevin, I think as critics, it's it's possible for us to probably get overly dramatic about the power of cinema and the power of the image. But this week, I really do think that the two movies that we're pairing um, are really conscious of the power of imagery in a really beautiful and subtle way. Just our luck, though, that we are going to be trying to get at the power of the cinematic image in an audio-only format like a podcast. I mean, whose bright idea was that anyway? It's definitely a, a prime example of critical thought and critical thinking on our end, I think. Listeners, for this week's new release, we are going to be discussing Chinonye Chukwu's movie Till, which is out this weekend. We're also going to be talking about my pick for the watch list this week, Charles Burnett's seminal 1978 indie film, Killer of Sheep. Those two films and the power of the cinematic image coming up on episode 353 of Seeing and Believing. I got a letter today from Auntie Lizzie. She said, Bo's been working the fields. Oh. <laughs> I can't imagine. Oh, he just doesn't understand how different things are in Mississippi. Are you listening? Yes. Be small down there. Like this? Emmett never thought anything would happen to him. Meet the mummy, Simmy! (laughs) He just wanted to go on vacation and have fun with his cousins. But if my son could just get his feet back onto the Chicago soil, he'd be one happy kid. I don't know why I said that. Yes, we're here on episode 353 of Seeing and Believing. And I'm sorry to say, Sarah, that we are not in the same physical space at the moment. Uh, We are Mm -hmm. recording over Skype, as we did of old, um, mostly because I had to go and get myself COVID. So, yeah, here we are. Yeah, hopefully uh, you're feeling better in rapid time so that we can get back to recording in person because it's a little bit difficult to do seeing and believing when you cannot see the other co-host. Yeah, dealing with technology gremlins is just adding insult on top of injury when it comes, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm going to have COVID, I would prefer not to wrestle with internet gremlins, but, you know, well, that's that's our lot in life for our recording. But we are going to be uh, talking about some more serious subject matter than uh, tech issues on this week's episode. We are going to be talking about uh, Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep from 1978 during our watch list segment. But for this first segment, we'll turn our attention to the new film Till. This is Chinonye Chukwu's uh, new historical drama that centers around the story of Mamie Till and her beloved 14-year-old son Emmett, who in 1955 was the victim of a brutal murder during a visit to his Mississippi relatives. In the horrific grief-streaking aftermath, Mamie, played here by Danielle Deadweiler, is thrust into an experience in which she navigates her multifaceted roles as a mother 
and a burgeoning civil rights icon. In her artistic statement accompanying the film, Chuck Wu has stated that her goal with the film was to show Mamie Till in all her complex humanity, that the film was not about traumatic violence, but was rather a love story, and that she wanted to make viewers empathize with the lead's humanity. So, Sarah, that seems like as good a place as any for us to start off with our discussion of uh, this very serious-minded film. Uh, do you think that in the final analysis, Chuck Wu was successful in her stated goals? Ultimately, yeah. I I think that she succeeded, and I think that... I, I, for one, appreciated that she was approaching this story with a sense of delicate balance, because this is a story that um, I think requires that level of delicate balance and respect for the real life lives who were destroyed in the process of of the events that are shown in the film. And I think that it's also important to note that Chuck Wu decided explicitly not to show any of the brutality that was visited on Emmett Till when he was lynched. Um, she said so explicitly in that director's statement. And she said that she really didn't want to focus on the brutality so much as Mamie Till's um, development into a civil rights icon and then also the focus of her love for her son both before and after his murder and I think that's a really difficult balance to draw and I do think that Chuck Wu managed to pull that off and I hate saying the words pull it off because that really feels like a flip way to refer to the movie and to the incidents that are depicted there and I don't think that I, I think that she is doing the work that she needs to do in order to tell the story with the respect that it deserves. And I think that a story poorly told about Emmett Till and about Mamie Till Mobley would have been, I think, a, a, a disrespectful thing to do. And I think that she manages to pull off that balance of being able to show these people in their humanity and in their grief and also in their love for each other. So I'm curious to know if you think that she managed to pull that balance as well. Well, it, it, I guess the it, it comes down to uh, aesthetic discipline in the end, I guess, is basically mm -hmm. what the question amounts to is um, when you deal with not just the 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 difficult subject matter just in general of racist violence in you know the Jim Crow South, but uh, just violence in general and trying to treat it respectfully while also not defanging it. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's a difficult tightrope to walk. And I think that on balance, this film does succeed at doing that. It's not um, it's not exploitative, of course. And I think that it does for the most part manage to walk that line where the audience feels the, the suffering that its characters are going through. Like we, this is, it's not a violent film. It's a mm -hmm. very emotionally brutal film I found. And I, I don't know how much of that was intentional on Chuck Wu's part. It seems like, um, in, you know, emphasizing its status as a love story, as the love between this mother and her son, there's, I mean, there's no way to really, <laughs> to really get that across without showing the extreme grief that Deadweiler's Mamie suffers over the course of the story. It's, if, if it's not like, 
the passion of the Christ in terms of just the on-screen bloodiness. It's mm-hmm. definitely it feels like it's as intense in that vein with the just the emotional ringer that uh, this character is put through over the course of the film. And that's kind of the the part where I found myself going back and forth where it was very effective. It also felt a little bit like um, there there's there's more than one way, I guess, to really uh, rub the audience's nose in in suffering. And I feel like that's mm-hmm. kind of more the thing, the thorny part of the story it wasn't so much like what violence is shown on screen, but what emotional uh, difficulty is shown on screen. How does Chuck Wu use the close up? How often does she use the close up? And just mm-hmm. how how much are we co- sort of made to sit through these scenes of extreme grief. That's a fair consideration, I think, to bring to this film. And like I said, I think that on balance, it does succeed, though I do maybe have some reservations about it uh, during some some of the scenes that were presented here. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, it doesn't really feel like she's trying to necessarily rub the noses of the audience in these characters' grief. I think that she is really trying to give us a sense for the breadth and the depth of that grief, even though, God forbid, any of us ever have to go through what what Mamie Till went through in, in losing a child. Um, I do think that it would have been, in a sense, I, I keep going back to the, to the um, words respectful and disrespectful, and I do think that it would have been disrespectful to show Mamie's grief without allowing us to feel at least a taste of that depth, if that makes sense. And I think that there are a couple of moments where the movie doesn't fully manage to convey that sense. And at the same time, um, I think I got what the movie was going for. And the fact that at no point did the film feel saccharine or trite, like Chuck was not letting the audience off the hook here. Um, she isn't going to show physical violence on the screen, but she also at the same time is willing to show the aftermath of that violence, both emotionally and physically. And I think I respected her directorial choices there because she makes a lot of this. She she respects the choices that Mamie also had to make um, after the death of her son. Like Mamie chose to have an open casket funeral for Emmett and she chose to allow photos of her son's body to be published nationwide. And those actions were part of what kicked off another wave in the civil rights movement at the end of the 1950s. And I think that to elide, I think, some of those decisions or to refuse to show what Mamie had chosen to show, I think would have potentially been an act of defanging Mamie's choices. So I don't know, like, I I think it's difficult to judge whether or not a movie like this is, I don't know, even it's a piece of history and it's a difficult piece of history. And it's the kind of history where I think we as Americans are willing to try to turn it off and look away and say, like, that's something that happened in the past. This isn't something that we need to worry about now. And yet at the same time, I think that Chukwu is very careful to draw lines without putting too fine a point on it between the violence that Emmett underwent and also the violence that Black people 
go through every day in our country now. And I, I don't know, like it, it feels like it's a, a difficult story. And I think I appreciate that delicacy with which she tells that and with which she draws those lines without explicitly saying this is happening right now because she doesn't necessarily need to say that. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, one thing that interests me about this story is that tension that Mamie had to experience between her very real felt grief, the fact that she lost a son, she lost her only son uh, at the time, and that the trauma of that, the difficulty of that was something that she, just like anyone, would have to navigate. And yet at the same time, uh, she found herself obliged to also um, send a message with the way that she processed that difficult, th those difficult emotions, having that open casket funeral, inviting uh, a photographer to take pictures of the body while she stood next to the body, <laughs> being essentially being part of a, of a composition. Um, mm -hmm. That's, that's kind of, that that's a really interesting and uh, harrowing situation to to explore the the way that the the audience for those photographs like the the magazines that sold copies based on these these photographs might not have been publishing them with the same kind of respect that that Mamie felt for it obviously like that there were probably a lot of people who bought those magazines kind of wanting to gawk at something rather than wanting to mourn over something. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that I, I found to be an interesting, uh, element kind of coursing underneath the surface of this story. I would have liked to have seen the, the film explore a little bit more of just how, how much Mamie was, was obliged to grapple with that. The fact that she had to essentially use the press in order to get any justice at all. And it wasn't something that would necessarily she would choose to do, but it was something that she, she was obliged to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that moments in the film where it does kind of get at that, I'm thinking of the, the long take of Mamie's testimony at the trial of Emmett's killers, where, uh, it starts, you know, it's, it's a, a shot entirely in a close up, uh, a medium close up. And we start off with the uh, the prosecution, the you know a friendly uh, questioning uh, from the prosecution, and then it transitions into the much more adversarial, insulting questioning from the defense uh, of of the two killers. And the entire time, Chuckwoo's camera stays trained on Mamie's face, and Deadweiler. I think it's her finest moment in the film. You you see her really just barely holding it together um but doing so because she knows that uh to to break down in that moment would be to uh lose everything that she had sacrificed for up to that point and mm -hmm. so the fact that she was both trying to provide effective testimony and also fighting her own natural maternal instinct to lash out at the at the people who were treating her her son's life as uh, lesser than it than it was. I, I think that's probably the 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 film's finest hour. I I wish that the film had kind of had more of that in it. I there's a lot of emotion that Deadweiler's called on to exhibit over the course of the film. A, a lot of it did seem very demonstrative, and I I don't know that at least in the audience I really 
got under the skin of it beyond just what kind what grief has kind of been portrayed as in other films. And I, I think that moments like that uh, testimony scene, I think, do succeed. And I think that those were the moments I was wanting more of. Mm. Yeah, I do agree that that testimony scene is is a terrific piece of acting. Um, I do also want to call out though, um, some of the cinematography, because I think that that is also doing some of the emotional heavy lifting. So the director of photography is Bobby Bukowski. And throughout that testimony scene, for example, um, the camera is trained entirely on Danielle Detweiler's face in that medium close up. It's almost angled up a little bit so that you can see the ceiling above her. But as she starts her testimony, in the background, you can see the judge sitting behind her and the camera just shifts ever so slightly to the side. So it starts, the shot starts with Danielle Detweiler in, in profile and then it shifts until she's almost looking down the barrel of the camera. And as the camera is shifting, you can actually see this judge sitting behind her, kind of blurry, being moved behind the back of her head. And I think that you can tell through that shot that she is conscious not only of the way that she appears to the press who are present in that courtroom, but also the way that she appears to the judge. And I think that um, this movie is very smart about how Mamie was smart about image and about how the way that she was portrayed and the way that her son was portrayed were going to have an effect on the rest of the nation. And I think that some of those moments of slightly broader emotion are effective in showing that this isn't what she wanted. Of course, like she did not want her son to go to Mississippi. She did not want her son to die. She did not want to have to show her son to the United States as an example of like, this is what is happening to black people in the South. Um, and so I think that a lot of that cinematography is is very smart at showing what's going on in her head without, again, drawing a little too fine a point on it. There's another shot that I'm thinking of after the trial proceeds. It's nighttime. Um, court is recessed for the day. And you can just see um, a reflection of Mamie's face in the glass of one of the windows of the house that she's staying in. And the way that the glass is positioned, you can actually see kind of a double reflection or sort of a, a scattered reflection where it's not her face clearly, it's it's multiple images of her face reflected on the glass. And I think that shots like that give you a good idea of her mental state without explicitly having to say that out loud. Um, there's one other shot that I wanna call attention to um, and it's the one where Mamie finds out that Emmett has been murdered. And it's actually a dolly zoom. It's very subtle. But the moment that someone walks into the room to deliver the news and to say, I'm so sorry, your, your son's not coming back, the camera starts to do um, a very subtle shift where the camera's zooming in while the dolly is moving out. And you can actually see kind of the background behind her start to slowly expand as she makes that realization. It's not a very dramatic one, like you'll see in Hitchcocker and Spielberg, but it's still there. And I think that that level of, of mastery and subtlety over what's going on with the camera, I think does a lot of that heavy emotional lifting for me. Yeah. Those, those moments are, are very effective. And I, I think that the, the, the directing here is, is very much on point throughout in the ways that, Chuck was able to 
suggests those things without having to to spell them out in, in dialogue. And I do appreciate that there there wasn't a whole lot there. You know, there wasn't a scene between Mamie and the lawyers where you know, she has to sort of like hash out. Well, this isn't the real me that I'm show- like, that's that's not spelled out in dialogue. It is, as you say, kind of suggested through. Uh, through image rather than dialogue. And I do appreciate that. Having said that, I did find, I found some of the dialogue disappointing, not necessarily because it was bad, but more that, more that just, it felt very familiar to me. Um, A lot, there, there was a lot of lines where uh, Mamie will be saying things like, I have to be there for my child or um, things of that nature where it felt like, it was kind of content to reach for a common expression that's that you'd you'd expect to hear in that moment from a grieving parent rather than I guess what I can I guess what I keep coming back to is I in those moments I feel like the film is retreating into the safety of um, something adjacent to cliche rather than really doing what what Chuck Wu's aim is uh, for the film overall and that she succeeds in uh, in certain select passages where she shows the full humanity of Mamie. I felt like in, in those moments where we kind of get the more um, boilerplate expressions of maternal love, those th- felt less successful to me simply because in those moments she felt more like Mamie the the saint or maybe the icon rather than maybe the, the mother and the person. And, uh, I, I don't know. I, I felt like those, those moments were perhaps less successful. The dialogue didn't bother me too much. Um, I think where the movie did stumble for me a little bit was in some of the musical choices. Um, and the, maybe, yeah, the music is, is a little, uh, can be overbearing at times. It felt a little either on the nose or there are scenes where Mamie is delivering a speech, for example, at a civil rights rally and, um, or the scene where she decides like, yes, she is going to go to court and she is going to testify. And some of those moments in the score almost feel like perhaps they're, they're retreating a little bit to a safer space because I think in a lot of, historical drama movies you you get a moment where the strings start to swell and the piano starts to to play and it felt almost a little bit upbeat at moments where it didn't really feel like it should have been upbeat um and maybe that's trying to get i I suppose a generous read would be that's trying to get at the the complexity of emotion that underlies those decisions but i didn't really fully get that level of complexity from those moments in the film either yeah, I, I'm I'm curious to know um, one other thing that struck me was the, the film's treatment of faith. So mm-hmm. at, at one point, uh, Mamie does talk about uh, how uh, she finds strength in her God. And there's uh, an opening scene where we see her uh, through her bedroom doorway, you know, kneeling and praying uh, for Emmett as you know, he's he's gone down to Mississippi without her to visit some relatives. And she's naturally worried about him. Um, and, uh, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on this film's treatment of faith. Cause, um, that seemed to me, uh, an interesting opportunity. I kind of wish that it had delved into it a little bit more. Um, 
I don't know. Um, it, it felt almost as though the scenes in which the movie acknowledges Mamie's faith were there to establish the fact that she was a, a person of faith. Um, I think a moment that did work for me was Emmett's open casket funeral. Um, once people start coming into the church to pay their respects, the church choir begins to sing the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And I, th I think that that is, one, it's, it's a musical moment within the movie that I think did a good job of underlying that tension of, we know that there is a, a better world and a better place, and it's not the one that exists here and right now in this country, and yet we have faith that, you know, Christ is going to make all things new. I, th I think that that did a better job of, of underlying the complexity of the emotion underlying a lot of the decisions that the characters in this movie have to make. Um, and at the same time, it's just a musical choice. And it's not something that I think comments on Mamie's faith or the faith of the other people around her. So there, there is um, a couple of scenes of, of characters praying, but it doesn't really go into much more of a deeper level than that. Um, and I, I found myself wondering if the film would have felt just a touch deeper if it had been willing to delve a little bit more into um, Mamie's prayers or something like that. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. If it had been, if it really dug into the spirituality of these characters rather than just evoking it, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good point. And I do like that, that the scene uh, of, of Emmett's open casket funeral is kind of an example of Chuck Wu's philosophy in action where we do, we do see, um, Emmett's body in that scene, but it's, um, the camera is much more interested, not in, in really locking on, on that image, but, uh, paying attention to the way, different ways that people viewing, uh, the body react, you know, some of them, uh, are, are affect a more stoic demeanor. Some of them obviously, you know, break down completely. And that breadth of, of reaction, I think is an interesting choice on Chuck Wu's part to suggest that, you know, there, there are different ways in which this community copes with the, the, the racism and the violence that they're forced to undergo, uh, throughout their lives. And I think that that's, uh, an example of, of Chuck Wu's overall philosophy, which is to, uh, not sensationalize, um, and also, uh, provide a, a nuanced look at, uh, horrific realities without, with, without dwelling on the horrific side of things. It, it, more, more interested, I guess, in the reality, I guess, if those two things could even be separated, it mm -hmm. seems like Chuck Wu's good at, um, striking the right balance in scenes like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and I mean, I think that she's good at not alighting, but not dwelling on the horrific violence. But I think at the same time, she does a good job of getting across the level of emotional violence and, um, at the level of emotional violence that someone who has had to endure racism and who has had to endure the death of a loved one. Um, 
that level of emotional violence was something that that I did feel very strongly throughout this this film. Um, I think you mentioned at the top uh, that this is an emotionally brutal movie, and I completely agree with that. And I think that it needs to be. Um, because again, I, I think that a movie that is not willing to go to that level of emotional depth and that is not willing to go to the wide variety of emotional depths that the characters within it go to, um, I think that that would be a, a toothless movie and I think that it would be frankly disrespectful to everyone involved. So in the final analysis, uh, would you say that that Shinonia Chekwu was uh, ultimately successful, or at least broadly successful in uh, achieving the aims that she set forth in in that uh, director's statement? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I, I think she managed to pull it off and I think that she did so really, really quite well. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think this is a good film and I, I'd encourage uh listeners to check it out if it's playing near you it probably is it's being released this weekend so if you have a chance to see it obviously let us know your thoughts um there's a lot to dig into here you can email us at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com or you can tweet us at c believe pod we love to hear from you listeners don't go anywhere we're gonna share some feedback from all of you out there and then dig into charles burnett's killer of sheep This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And Kevin, two weeks ago when we said that we were going to be covering Amsterdam and The Long Goodbye, I put out a call on Twitter that just said, What's your favorite whodunit? And we heard back from Lindsay Dunn, um, who said, a little late to this party. She responded after our episode dropped. Um, She responded, a little late to this party, but I was curious what my top-rated mystery was. According to Letterboxd, it's The Conversation and Brick. And I feel like one of those is precisely the correct answer to give for our (laughs) segment, which we also call The Conversation. I, I mean, I don't think that I'm engaging in any hyperbole here to say that those are two masterpieces. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think those are great choices. I would I would get back to me on different days and I'd probably say either one of them. I think they're both just just absolutely wonderful. Yeah, they definitely are. And also, I don't know if the conversation quite counts as a whodunit, but I'm going to let that one slide because that movie is a stone cold masterpiece. <laughs> I mean, when when you're a masterpiece, you can get away with bending the rules a little bit, I would say. <laughs> you absolutely can. Well, uh, thanks, uh, Lindsay, for, for writing in and sharing those 
uh, picks with us and reminded me that I really need to rewatch the conversation sometime. It's been way too long since I've seen it. Lindsay also is a Patreon of Seeing and Believing. If you go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast, as Lindsay did once upon a time, you'll see that there are various tiers at which you can pledge monthly to help us keep the lights on here, help us pay Jonathan, and uh, just help us keep the conversation about movies going. Uh, And one of the tiers that you can pledge at, I think this is the one that Lindsay pledged at, is the $10 a month level which, among other things, gives you the right to dictate one movie a year for us to review on the air. And uh, Lindsay actually has shared her pick with us. And I think we're going to be talking about that on uh, our November bonus episode, Sarah. Yes, that is correct. She picked Agnes, which is a horror movie that came out in 2021, um, which has to do with nuns and priests and a crisis of faith, which honestly seems like a really good choice for seeing and believing. <laughs> nuns, priests, crises of faith, uh, psychological horror, perhaps. Uh, that's definitely uh, right up our streets, as I would say. Absolutely. Looking forward to reviewing that movie. And Lindsay, thank you for supporting the show. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So now we're going to go to the watch list, which Kevin, as you know, is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host hasn't seen. We go and we watch that movie and then we get back together in order to discuss it. So Kevin, this week you had the choice of movie and you picked Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep which was written, shot, directed, edited, and produced all by Charles Burnett, um, and which he also ended up submitting as his MFA thesis uh, in 1978, even though it was shot, I believe, a few years before then. Killer of Sheep assembles a portrait of life in L.A.'s Watts neighborhood in the early 1970s, but rather than telling a story with a traditionally structured plot, Burnett instead shows life in Watts as a series of loosely connected scenes that drop in on Stan, played by Henry G. Sanders, who works in a slaughterhouse to provide for his family, but who also can't make himself emotionally open to them. And so the film sort of switches back and forth between scenes around Stan's family and then also scenes of children just playing around the Watts neighborhood. We get to see different neighbors enjoying like pieces of their lives dealing with the difficulties of being alive in Watts in the early 70s, um, all through some very striking imagery. So, Kevin, uh, I'm curious to know of a movie that is built of sort of a collage of very striking images and scenes. Is there an image from this movie that sticks with you whenever you think about it? I mean, there's there's a lot of images that that stick with me, obviously, as as you hinted there. But there's one that I think about 
all the time probably and it's uh in this sequence that it's it's basically uh burnett's camera is is taking us through part of the neighborhood uh where the children are are all playing like there are a whole bunch of children out and about and they're all kind of engaged in various games and uh chasing each other around and at one point uh we were taken down this alley and uh burnett's camera tilts upward pointed straight at the sky and uh as his camera is pointed in that direction we see children leaping from rooftop to rooftop so the al- alleys are narrow enough that children on the roofs can literally you know run and jump from one rooftop to another and burnett's camera captures them uh, just silhouetted against nothingness, silhouetted against the sky as they as they fly above us, uh, going from rooftop to rooftop. And all we see is just children, weightless, uh, moving from uh, one high point to another. And when I when I think about that image, I appreciate it more and more because even though Killer of Sheep is a, you know, it, it's it's a it's a difficult film. It's uh, gives a no frills picture of working class black people in the 1970s. So not an easy life by, by any stretch. It's easy to kind of think of it as, you know, one of those, one of those films where it's just like, it's, it's so hard and I just can't, I can't take watching it. Um, or it's tempting to conceive of it just as, you know, a, a film that's all about struggle and, when I think of this image of the children leaping from the rooftop to rooftop, it's that image isn't about struggle. It's exact. It's the exact opposite. It's an image of freedom, of joy, of, uh, of exhilaration and exuberance. And I, I, I love it for that because it shows that, uh, it, there's a there's a tendency of of some movies about these kinds of experiences to flatten it into all just being like oh it's just hard all the time mm-hmm. and killer of sheep uh is shows that there's a, a richness to it as well that there that there are uh moments of grace even in in difficult situations and that um there's there's joy in them as well and i just i i appreciate very much for that and i think that that Moments like that one are what really set it apart and have taken f- to being justly like one of justly immortalized as one of the very first great American indie movies. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that exact same image, actually, as, as <laughs> I was formulating that question. Um, and I think one of the things that strikes me so much about it is just the richness of that imagery, even though on its face, it's incredibly simple. It's just two rooftops and children jumping from rooftop to rooftop. You only see one child at a time. Um, And it almost feels as though they're floating above the neighborhood that they're from. They're completely carefree. And I think that there is the danger of coming crashing down to earth because it's an alleyway it's narrow but there's there's still a gap in that space and yet these children are going to jump anyway like they cannot be kept down um and i think that level of of irrepressibility of the human spirit is one of those things that um really made me appreciate this movie 
a lot. I was already paying like very close attention. Like you'd said, it's it's not the easiest movie in the world to watch. And I think part of it is the way that it's structured, which I, th- I think we should get into. Um, part of it is that this is a film that is literally just a group of, of vignettes that have been very carefully assembled in order to tell a plotless story. And I was paying very close attention up until that point, but that shot in particular was one of the shots that made me sit up and take notice and think, I'm never going to forget what that image looks like ever again. Mm. Um, It's just, it's an incredible image. And it's one that I think could have a ton of different meanings affixed to it, or it could just be just a very striking image of children at play. And I love it for its simplicity and I love it for its depth at the same time. Oh, I mean, that that kind of feels to me like the and, and by the way, I'm really glad that, that you you like this movie as much as you did. I, I love introducing people to it because because it's an indie movie. It It's not necessarily one of the first ones that come to people's mind when they think of, you know, the cinema of the 1970s. It doesn't you know have the stature of something like, you know, The Godfather or The Conversation, for example. Um, but I, I think that what sets it apart and has helped it endure is um, kind of what we've been talking about just already is its ability to bring to life the texture of living in one of these neighborhoods. So it's not, so it's not a plot heavy movie, right? Like there's not uh you know, there's, there's not a, a narrative through line that we necessarily uh, follow from beginning to end there. There's a, a central character Stan, but the, uh, his story isn't one where, you know, there's a beginning, middle and end. It's more just, we get, we get vignettes, we get a collage of experiences. And the effect of that is actually paradoxically to give us a very good idea of, of what his life is like, rather than forcing it into a narrative structure. Burnett allows us to just experience sort of what it feels like to, you know, to lead that kind of existence and, the the mingled um, joys and tenderness and difficulties of it. Um, I I think that that's really it. The its secret sauce, so to speak, is just the ability to evoke an entire life without telling a story, a traditional story about that life. And I I really appreciate about it, especially the second time through. I think a lot of the strength, too, is that it's not just a group of images that have been jumbled together. You can tell that Charles Burnett has taken extremely close care in the order and the way in which he's showing these images, too. So um, I'm curious to know your read on the scene because I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. But the movie opens with um, a boy being chastised by his father for not going to the defense of a friend in a schoolyard fight. Um, and then there's a a flurry of images where you get a bit of a picture of what the rest of the family is, is doing as they're reacting to and absorbing this conversation. Um, and then the boy's mother comes up and actually slaps him in the face. Um, and then you get just this cut to the title and then on going to the rest of the movie. And I'm not entirely sure what to make of that scene other than, um, commentary on on masculinity and on being willing to stand up for your own but the more i think about that the movie kind of opens with this moment of violence in defense of somebody else and then also closes out 
um, the, the movie has these these images sort of spliced in throughout of sheep at the slaughterhouse that Stan works at. And you kind of follow those sheep's um, trajectory through the slaughterhouse throughout the movie. So towards the very end, you do see sheep being killed and then skinned. And I I don't know how, like what exactly is being said, but I, I think there's something there and I, it's probably because I just haven't fully absorbed the images there, but this, this shift from familial relationships and, and violence, and then this violence of this workplace that Stan has to endure. It's, it's something that I don't fully know what to make of it. I'm not sure that I can say what it means, but I could feel the depth of what was trying to be done just with those images juxtaposed near each other. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, here, here's, here's my thing is I, I don't know that I really have a good answer for that question. I don't, I, when I think of that scene, I don't know that I can kind of come away with it with a tidy thesis statement. Like this is how it fits into the the film's overall argument. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's more doing what a lot of the, the film is, which is, um, evoking the the feeling of growing up in uh, or or not just growing up but existing in a world where there's all sorts of different pressures at work upon the individual so uh, there's there's another scene where where Stan and a friend they're they're trying to transport an engine block and mm-hmm. just the the extreme difficulty of moving that from one place to another and and just trying to transport it and how, again, like there's not really a point to that sequence in the sense that it's trying to tell us something specific. I think it's more just trying to evoke like the sense that these people are trying hard to to make their way in the world. And yet there's something that's even there, there's something larger than them that's kind of obliging them to <laughs> like in, in an ideal world, nobody would be forced to transport a giant heavy engine block using, you know, their, their own bare hands, right? Like there would be, mm-hmm. there would no, be no need for that kind of toil. And yet these characters do have to do that. In an ideal world, uh, a boy wouldn't uh, be, be obliged to engage in violence on behalf of, of somebody else. In an ideal world, he wouldn't be shamed for it by his parents. And yet they, th- those things are part of existence for them. And I, I think that that's, it, it's evocative of, of an entire world, not just an individual's experience, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think it's evocative of the world in a way that understands the spoken and unspoken rules about how that world works and the lines that can and can't be crossed. So you can't cross the line of not coming to the defense of your friend. Um, I think that a lot of the interstitial scenes of of children at play also shows a lot of those unspoken rules where if you're a boy and you come across a group of girls, then you have to be rude and mean to them because that is just what schoolyard kids do, you know? And then there's also the kind of the law of gravity with that engine block. Like, these two men are fighting against gravity and they're also fighting against um, the circumstances that have put them in the position where they need to repair spare engine blocks for money at the same time. And they're not always going to be successful. Like the engine block is going to fall out of the back of the car sometimes. And that's not their fault. 
And yet it is also a reality of the world in which they live, which is that the engine block is going to fall out and all of that time and effort and and toil spent even just carrying that engine block, let alone repairing it, is going to be wasted. Um, and I think that the movie is not sentimental about this at all, which I really appreciated. It's just going to show this as this is a fact of life. This is what Stan and the other people in his neighborhood have to go through. And so we're just going to present it using some incredibly striking imagery while we're at it. You know, I might be spinning a little bit too much out of this, but at least to me, it feels very much like a a story that is informed a lot by the the curse of Adam and Eve in Genesis. The the fact that these characters uh, they're forced to, you know, make their living by the sweat of their brow. There's tension between uh, man and woman. There's also tenderness between man and woman. Um, there's, uh, you know, the the scenes of the slaughterhouse that we see. There, there, that really striking uh, linchpin sequence where there's this really patriotic song playing on the soundtrack about, you know, what America means to me and how beautiful it is, and it's a land of opportunity, juxtaposed with, you know sheep literally being led to the slaughter all of that feels very much like the fact that you know there's something broken in the world and you can't necessarily point your finger at any one thing and blame that one thing for why things are the way they are but it's no use pretending that things aren't broken and i appreciate that burnett's film is very matter of fact about that being the way things are without without either uh, retreating into cynicism on one hand, where it's just sort of like, well, there's no, you know, there's no point in being nihilistic about it. And on the other hand, not um, trying to sugarcoat it or give an easy answer where, you know, life is difficult for these people, but it's all worthwhile for, you know, the scene where Stan and his wife kind of embrace tenderly in front of a window. <laughs> like that's, that's yeah. not... I mean, it's a wonderful scene, but it's also Burnett isn't trying to suggest that, you know, this is their haven that makes everything perfect for them. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I think that's great. What a scene too. Um, like it's, it's incredibly tender. It's very romantic and it is so sad all at the same time. And I think that that gets back at, at the strength of this movie is that it's just sort of a palimpsest of images. Ooh, and like, you'd, thank you. <laughs> um, it's, it's a good word. And I think it's a word that's worth breaking out specifically for this movie because um, like you'd said, it's not concerned with any one issue or one problem. It's really interested in the piling up of circumstance and the piling up of experience that kind of build together the experience of a human life. So you are not just your job or you are not just your friends or your enemies or the things that you did as a child, but you are also sort of a, an amalgamation of all of those different things all at once. Um, it's a remarkable magic trick. And that, ah, I don't even like calling it a magic trick because that feels like it's boiling the movie down to just one thing. And it's really not just one thing. I think it is itself. And itself is just so many different, incredibly striking images and scenes and sequences that kind of build around like this, this one center core that can't really be explained or articulated. Like the image has to speak for itself. Um, I don't think I've seen very many movies that manage to pull that off in, in the way that this one does. 
Yeah, I feel like a, a lot of great films kind of have this ability to just be incredibly patient with uh, the world that they're allowing to unfold. So you think of something like like a Malick film where, mm-hmm. you know, Malick will just train his camera on some some grass waving in the breeze. And it's it's not as if there's a specific message that that grass contains, but in just having the patience to let this world breathe, the he allows his films to sort of accrete this this ineffable quality that feels like, oh, this this doesn't just feel like a nice picture or an interesting story. This feels like this feels like the world. It feels like a miniaturization of the world captured and put on a screen. And now it's going to live forever that way. And I just really like how I, I think Killer Sheep has a similar quality where it just it's patient enough and it's in no hurry to sort of explain Stan to us or explain racial relations in America to us or explain the working man's struggle to us. It's just content to capture this neighborhood um, and the rhythms of life within it. And by doing that, it gives us access to an experience that would have, it would have, you know, a a lesser film would have broken a sweat trying to tell a story around to do the same sort of thing. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Yeah. How lucky we are to be able to see this movie too. Um, I mean, it was lost for a couple of decades, um, if I remember right. And then it was, it was restored by UCLA. And uh, I'm just, I'm just incredibly grateful that I was able to see this slice of this piece of the world through Charles Burnett's eyes. And it's something that I think a lot more people should go and, and seek out. Yeah, I, I think the the Library of Congress, it's in the Library of Congress, and the Library of Congress declared it a national treasure. So, you know, not maybe not uh not too much of a of a stretch to give that term to it as well. It's a national treasure. And I don't know, I'm glad to have been able to introduce you to it and maybe a, a couple of our listeners as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, that is our review of Killer of Sheep. Uh, listeners, if you had a chance to to catch up with it, like we mentioned on last week's episode, it is uh, streaming online. It's currently doesn't have a uh, like a it's not on a major streaming platform. It doesn't have a home release on uh, DVD or Blu-ray, but there is a website you can go to where you can stream it for free. It was made available for free uh, in 2020, I believe. Um, and you can still view it online in that way. Uh, so you can definitely find it that way. Uh, we'll maybe put a link to that in the show notes. You can track it down for yourselves, but if you had a chance to track it down already, please let us know what you thought of it. Uh, I'm very curious to get some more perspectives on kind of the collage that Burnett presents us with here. So uh, that does it for for this week's episode. Next week we are going to be going from you know the the minimalistic impressionistic. Uh, qualities that we find in Killer Sheep to something a little bit more bombastic, perhaps, at least for our new release. We're going to be talking about Todd Field's new film uh, starring Kate Blanchett, Tar. I am so excited to talk about Tar. I I just, it's a movie that I think lives up to the bombast and it's a movie that I would like to be bombastic about. So I can't wait to discuss it with you here on the show. (laughs) And and you, you are also uh, get the privilege of picking a watch list film to pair with it. So what are you going to hit us with next week? Oh man, I'm going to hit you with a John Cassavetes movie and Cassavetes is a filmmaker that I admire more than I like, I think, but I do think 
that Cassavetti's movie Opening Night starring Gina Rowlands um, is just a tremendous movie that is very much in conversation with Tar. So hmm. um, Opening Night is available to watch on HBO Max and then it, you can also rent it on a lot of the usual suspects. So if you would like to watch Opening Night along with us um, and then follow along as we talk about it for the watch list, I would love to have you join that conversation as well. I'm looking forward to this one. I, I've got a confession to make here. This is going to be my very first Cassavetes. I've not seen any Cassavetes up till this point. So looking forward to finally breaking that that seal. I feel like you could do worse than starting off with opening night, honestly. So can't wait to share this one with you. And can't wait to see it. But that does it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is, of course, brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.